We're looking at the subject this morning of God's sovereignty and our gospel witness or evangelism and God's sovereignty. First thing you'll note in your bulletin outline is the false accusation that is often given about us who believe in sovereign grace. And it goes something like this. Well, you people who believe that God is sovereign in salvation, you cannot possibly be interested in calling sinners to Christ. I've had that accusation leveled at me many, many times, and I'm sure you have as well. The accusation is that belief in God's sovereignty in salvation is tantamount to no gospel witness. Yet this is to deny the history of the Bible. The first missionaries ever, Paul, Silas, Timothy, Barnabas, all of the apostles, the first missionaries ever believed in God's sovereignty in salvation and taught it as they went throughout Greece and Rome. What is more, think about this, the men of God responsible for the reformation and the break from man-centered Romanism, think of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, later John Knox, all of these people held to and taught the doctrines of grace as the only gospel. So where did you get that idea? Just read their books. It's in there. It's in there. Luther's bondage of the will. Man, that'll just set you on fire. You understand what he's, what he's saying. And Calvin's institutes and so forth and so forth. Even if we move closer to our own day and talk about the modern missionary movement, initiated by William Carey in England and later by Adoniram Judson, a Baptist here in America, these men were characterized as evangelists who taught a gospel exalting the salvation of God's sovereign choice. That that salvation is the result of a cooperative effort between God and sinner was not taught by these people. So when Kerry goes to India, a nation that is steeped in Hinduism, he taught sovereign grace. Now only those ignorant of the history of missions and evangelism would dare accuse the sovereign grace movement of being anti-witness, anti-inviting sinners to Jesus. And yet I say that this false accusation prevails even in our day. One of our brothers of our church that does preaching and so on was just recently turned down as an interim pastor when they found out that he believes in sovereign grace. That's in our community, 2013, not 1600, not 1700. Now our purpose today is not to rehash how to defend 
our position against misunderstanding and misrepresentation. But rather this question. Here's the question we're going to deal with today. Since we do believe God to be sovereign in salvation and also that man is responsible to respond aright to the gospel, how do we present the gospel in a way so as not to compromise these biblical truths? That's a fair question for us. How are we going to do this? We truly want to call sinners to faith in Christ and repentance, but not by denying one truth at the expense of the other. Okay, how do we do this? Because there is a seeming dilemma here. I use the word seeming. I'm referring to what J.I. Packer calls in his book, Evangelism in the Sovereignty of God, an antinomy, and I have this, I broke it down on the, on the board for us to see this morning. You know what anti means, that means against. Nomi is the, uh, from the Greek word nomos, law. So an antinomy is just the, the raw meaning is against the law, against logic, against what would be the rule. And the dictionary not Packer, <laughs> but the collegiate dictionary, Webster's, says this. I had to look it up myself. So. An antinomy is a contradiction between two apparently equal, valid principles or between inferences correctly drawn from such principles. So I've got two lines on there. You can hardly see the lines. Two parallel truths that if you looked in the scripture, you would see equal or pretty equal weight given to both, not a denial of one to substantiate the other. So Packer suggests, let's add the word apparent and place that in front of the word contradiction so it's an apparent contradiction. And he wants that word apparent added there because he says in the mind of God, there is no contradiction. There's nothing illogical about what God says or, what, or about what God does. The problem with, is with us and our short-sightedness. There are two principles standing side by side which cannot be reconciled and yet which cannot be denied. That's an antinomy. In such cases, there's good and sound reason for believing both of them because there is clear and reliable evidence to support both of them. We see the value of each as it stands on its own feet, but we cannot see how the two can both be true at one and the same time. That's an antinomy. Now this is different than a paradox. A paradox, <clears throat> this is a crash course in English, I should have Jolene up here. Uh, a paradox is a play on words. 
sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Paul talks about that. Or in the same verse, this is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10, um, having nothing yet possessing all things. See how that is? That's a paradox. But unlike that, an antinomy is not something we invent. It is not something we can explain. It's not something we can get rid of unless we falsify the facts. In particular, antinomy, which concerns us in today's study, is this. On the left side of the board, God's absolute sovereignty in the salvation of sinners... And, on the right side of the board, the total accountability of sinners for the choices they make with regard to God. In a nutshell, God is king over all of mankind and man's responsibility to God for his actions. And we dare not ignore either, nor do anything which undermines the integrity of either. Rather, we must acknowledge the truth of both principles and teach both principles, even though in our finite little brains we do not see how to reconcile them together. And may I just say that with regard to this antinomy, the tendency in both camps, get it now, both camps has been to try to establish their position by destroying the other guy's position. So we have those that believe in man's accountability and responsibility. They don't want to hear anything about election and predestination, the sovereignty of God before the creation of the world. And we got those in this camp saying, don't even give the call of the gospel to the loss because... They can't respond anyway. And that's called a hyper position with regard to this. So there's error on both sides. And it's wrong on both sides because the Bible teaches both of these parallel truths at one and the same time and asks us, indeed commands us, to teach both, believe both. Don't try to do this. Because when you try to do this, you're trying to do a logical compromise. And whenever you do that, man's sinful <laughs> interpretations enter in. Sinners need to hear in the gospel the clear call to repent of their sin and to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And to know that if they perish... It will be the result of their own stubborn willfulness and unbelief. We need to preach that wholeheartedly. And sinners also need to hear that repentance and faith are the gifts of God, which he gives to whomever he chooses, and that without the regenerate work of God's Spirit, there can be no repentance unto life and no saving trust in Jesus. Our evangelism must believe both, and teach both okay now here's the question how do we do it how do we do it wow what a monumental task this seems to be we're speaking for God 
about two things that he, even in his word, he isn't putting them together and blending them for us. He just says, preach these two things, and he turns us loose. Well, fortunately, may I say providentially, we have the example of Christ in John chapter 6. The text before us, John 6, is one of those, it's a rare jewel in the Bible. It contains in Jesus' words and actions all of the doctrines of grace, without exception, the things that we hold dear. And I want to use this as a foundation for our study. And the import, uh, we'll import some other appropriate scriptures, but this is the main text. And we'll follow the acrostic that we use in terms of the doctrines of grace, TULIP. T-U-L-I-P, and that'll become clear as we go through. We're all familiar with that. And then see how Jesus teaches this and this in his own sermon to these people in John chapter 6. How does he do it? Well, the first doctrine, total depravity or total inability. By the way, we've been learning about these things with Dr. Lawson on Sunday evening. And again, tonight we'll address another one of these truths. But total depravity. When we hear the word depraved, depravity, we think of perverts. (laughs) I think we do in our society. We think of those people that are child molesters and, and, you know, they're they're into all of the sordid aspects of of life. The wicked parts of Detroit's back streets, those kind of things. Oh, those are, they're, they're depraved people. That is not how the Bible or how the theologians use the word depraved. If they use the word in terms of inability, total inability. Helpless, helpless. Think about that. The truth of the Bible that no sinner has the innate ability to respond aright to God and by a righteous decision of his own will to choose to believe in Jesus or to accept his atoning work by faith. The Apostle Paul words it this way. The man without the Spirit, and he's talking about the Spirit of God, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. That's pretty clear, isn't it? If that were the end of the verse, that'd be enough for us to preach on for a little while. But he goes on to say, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. That tells you his mental outlook with regard to spiritual things. Oh, that's just a bunch of foolishness. And, here's the next phrase, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You need the Spirit to understand or discern, and they don't have the Spirit. So, number one, foolishness. Number two, cannot understand. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. So here Paul is saying that a man man devoid of God's spirit, man as we find him in the world, does not accept and cannot understand the spiritual truths of the Bible. Within context, he has been talking about those who are filled with the spirit of the world over against those who are filled with the spirit of God. Verse 12, he has said that only the spirit within a man knows what's in the heart of a man, and only the spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. 
verse 11. So his conclusion is that people who do not have the Spirit of God can't know the thoughts of God. Even the thoughts that he reveals in the gospel. Now, you see, the gospel, if it is anything, is the word in the thoughts of God. And it's the thoughts of God about how sinners may be reconciled to him. It contains truth on the character of God, the work of Jesus in the atonement, the necessity of regeneration or being born again. And it contains truth on the wickedness of all men without exception, the utter repulsion sinners have for a holy God. That's all truth that God has in his word. And these spiritual truths, among others, are viewed as foolishness to the natural man, and he does not accept them and he cannot understand them. He, and let me say it this way. He will never accept them. And he will never understand them. It's not a matter of lack of intelligence, not that. But it's a matter of a blinded heart which prefers lies over truth and darkness over light because their deeds are evil. Jesus said that himself in John 3 verse 19. This is total inability, total depravity, in the sense that all of the, of the human nature is corrupted with a bias against God. People don't like to hear this about themselves. They like to think, well, I believe in God. Yeah, but when you start probing a little deep into, into their definition of God, their God isn't the God of the Bible. So do they believe in God? Or do they believe in an idle concept? <coughs> now how are we to relate this truth about depravity in our witness to sinners? Should we be telling this to sinners? I preached a message on total depravity one time at a pastor's fellowship of all places. And a visiting pastor who claimed to believe in the doctrines of grace said... I never preach depravity to sinners. Boy, did that, we get into a lively discussion on that one. His answer was, I don't see the necessity to do so because it's my conclusion that people already see themselves as depraved, as not having any ability. Well, I don't know what people he's talking to, but that's not the crowd that, that come across my path. Aside from the fact that total depravity is part and parcel to the gospel of God, which we have no right not to preach, if it's part of it, because a person admits to being a sinner, is that the same as a man understanding that he has no ability whatsoever to obey God and love God and come to Christ in saving faith and repentance? I mean, I hear people of the world say all the time that they are sinners. Or that, to use their words, well, you know, everyone makes mistakes. Or nobody is perfect. But they still believe that they are good enough to please God and earn salvation. Well, I'm a sinner. Well, no one's perfect. Everyone makes mistakes. But I believe that when push comes to sub, when the end of the time is, is near and I'm held accountable, 
I believe my good deeds will outweigh my evil deeds. I believe that I have the power to believe and be saved. They have never reckoned with the truth of Isaiah 64, 6. Where God, again, he's explaining things. And he says this, all our righteous acts. Let me interpret for you. All the good things we do are like filthy rags. I'm reading scripture in God's sight. So even if they say, well, I do bad things, but I've got these good things, and these good things will commend me to God, they don't reckon with the truth that even the good things that they hold up as their offering to God are not viewed as good by God. They do not see them as being filthy rags and a stench before God. See, motive enters into God's definition of good things. Not just the act itself, but why are you doing it? I smile every time I see one of the Hollywood stars do one of these photo ops. They go to Africa and hand out food supplies or clothes or whatever and so forth. And everyone says, oh, wow. Wasn't that wonderful? That was so good of them to do that. And, they, and they're saying in the photo op, yeah, wasn't I wonderful? What's the motive? Is it to please God? Do they, are they doing all that they do? Whatever's not done for the glory of God is sin. Scripture teaches us that. They don't reckon that way. They don't think that way. Okay, what did Jesus do in our text? Well, after this marvelous miracle of feeding the 5,000, which is part of this text, you know, a few fish and a few loaves of bread, the people looking for another free meal followed Jesus and his disciples in boats, wow, talk about dedication, across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum at no small cost. But instead of another free lunch, Jesus began to teach the people of himself as the true bread of heaven, which, if ingested, would endure to eternal life and not just ease the hunger pangs of the day. Verse 26 and 27. Well, that's all it took. Quite a heated debate among those Jews present came over that point. Verse 41. The Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Within context, verse 42 shows that their gripe at this point, at this point in the discussion, was not over Jesus' reference to himself being the bread which feeds men's souls, but rather that he claimed to have come down from heaven. When in fact these people knew Joseph and Mary, Jesus' earthly parents, they knew them very well. And so here the truth of Jesus' deity that he was a heaven being come down in body form, that truth was being denied and he was being renounced for making such a claim. What is that? Is it not their human inability, their human depravity demonstrating itself? 
They know the physical. They knew the wisdom about origins, which all men know that every person has parents. They applied this to Jesus in terms of Joseph and Mary. But his spiritual identity, that he was God's son in the flesh, this they could not comprehend. Total inability. Total depravity. But I would say this. This is inability in action. It is not the same as people being told that they have no ability to respond to right to spiritual truth. It is their inability evidencing itself. So it is important that we observe Jesus' action. What does he do? Verse 43. He says, stop grumbling. It's a word that means speaking low tones or whispers, muttering under one's breath. Stop muttering among yourselves. Jesus answered, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We'll come back to this verse a little later on the doctrine of irresistible grace. But for now, I want you to note Jesus' words. No one can come unless. No one can come unless. And his reference to the Father indicates that Jesus is still pressing home his theme that he has come down from heaven as the bread of life. For heaven is where the Father dwells. And he's saying to them, I know you can accept this. I know you cannot believe this. But he's not backing down either. And in verse, verse 42, these same Jews pridefully declared, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know something about you. But here in verse 43, Jesus is saying that there is something they don't know about him. And indeed will never know or understand unless God does a work in their heart. Is he not challenging them? Is he not declaring to them in no uncertain terms that they are unable to comprehend what he's teaching? In verse 36, he did the same thing saying, But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. So they do not believe, they cannot understand, and they will not come to Christ. This is depravity. And Jesus in verse 63 of our text says essentially what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. The point being the people could not comprehend them because they were unable to do so. And so the teaching of Jesus seemed foolishness and hard to them. Verse 60, it seemed illogical and the scripture in our text says they walked away and no longer followed him. So long as they thought they could figure him out. Well, I'll tell you what we know. We know who your father and mother are. And Jesus answered, yeah, but you don't know the greater reality. You don't know that God the Father is the one that's my father. 
Jesus often pointed out men's depravity to them. In John 5, verse 36 and following, he told the Pharisees, How can you, being evil, say anything good? What's he doing? He's saying, this is, this is what you are by nature. And he goes on to explain, a dead tree cannot produce good fruit. Make the tree good, and then you'll have good fruit. He's teaching on depravity. He's teaching on inability. I don't expect anything different out of you Pharisees. I know where you're coming from. Now let me suggest to you what Jesus did not do when he taught people about their inability. He did not do certain things. He did not refuse to invite them to believe in him, though he knew they were full of unbelief. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't get this. They can't come unless the Father draws them, blah, 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 blah. And yet he called on them to believe. Yeah, he's, now we're on this side of the board. He did not refuse to invite them to believe in him, though he knew they were full of unbelief. He did not hesitate to call them to repentance, though he knew that repentance is of God's doing. He did not stop placing spiritual truth in front of them even though they could not accept it. He did not hesitate to offer himself to them as Savior. In our text, verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. I'm here. Believe in me. Verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 40, my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. You see what he's doing? I do not see any hesitation here in Jesus to, to invite depraved sinners to entrust their lives to Him. Do you? In other words, He never taught inability in such a way as to excuse men for their wrong decisions. He held them responsible and called on them to respond aright to the truth. So this must be part of our evangelism too. Secondly, what about unconditional election? By the way, we're going to look at that tonight in Lawson's study on the, uh, on the video series. It states that God chose people unto salvation regardless of any foreseen faith or repentance so that the choice to save was solely at the discretion of God acting freely according to the decision of his own will. Paul's statement to the Ephesians is classic. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. Well, I see that'd be before you were around, wouldn't it be? Before I was around, before the creation of the world. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. He goes on. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1 verse 4 and following. But you know we have it in Jesus' words in our text. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. We read that before. 
Verse 38 assures us that Jesus came to do the Father's will. And verse 39 tells us that it is the Father's will that Christ lose none of all that he has given. So clearly Jesus is saying that the believing people, verse 40, are those who have been given to Christ by the Father. Isn't that the doctrine of unconditional election? Isn't Jesus saying in no uncertain terms that those who come to him are a gift of God, the Father, to him? But there's more. Verse 44, we read that none can come to Christ unless the Father draws them. And so the true truths combined say something like this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. No one else. No one else. This is unconditional election. Have you ever heard um, some well-meaning Christians say something like this? Well, we know that election, the doctrine of election is in the Bible. It's certainly a truth that all of God's people need to know. But it's one of those, uh, you know, it's one of those deeper truths which uh, should be taught to the more mature Christian. It's not a subject for a novice. And most certainly, it's a no-no in speaking to lost sinners. I've had people say that to me. Words to that effect are said all the time. Yet our Lord taught unconditional election to people of whom he also said, verse 36, you have seen me and still (laughs) you do not believe. These were unbelievers to whom Jesus was teaching the election of God. And not only did he teach them this truth in the general sense, but he personalized it by saying to the grumblers, No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. He was suggesting, of course, that their grumbling wouldn't resolve their difficulty and it wouldn't change the outcome. Go ahead and grumble all you want. At the same time, I say again that Jesus went on to say to these people, I tell you the truth, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 47 and following. There is no reservation on Jesus' part to appeal to sinners to entrust themselves to him, even though he knows and has even taught them that none but those given by the Father will believe on him. Unconditional election. We're going to address tonight in Lawson's the opposite view, which is that God's election is conditioned, that he kind of looked down the corridors of history and he saw who would believe in Jesus and who wouldn't. When he saw those who would believe in Jesus, he said, they're my elect, I'll make them the elect. We'll address that tonight. But I think you can see that that has holes in it. Does God ever react to us? Does he make his plan for history based on what we're going to do or not do? Then who's the one making the choices around here? Who's the one sovereign around here? Think about it. Third, what about the doctrine of limited atonement or called particular redemption? That Christ actually 
shed his blood only for the elect, and therefore all for whom Christ died will be saved. In the mode of evangelism in this country, there is the teaching of universalism. This exclusive atonement contained in the gospel almost sounds heretical to people. What? You're saying that Christ just shed his blood for the elect, not for everybody in the world. I was visiting um, my home church in Pennsylvania some years back, and the pastor made the statement that Christ died for every last sinner from Adam on down through the ages and on into the future. That was his statement, not mine. People who say such things hardly recognize the implication of their own statements. If the blood of Jesus was actually spilt for every last soul on earth, then every last soul on earth is cleansed from his or her sin and is forgiven. That's what atonement's all about. But our other brethren are so convinced, no, no, they say, salvation is a decision which the sinner makes. And they're so convinced of that that their explanation as to why people are not saved is because they didn't make the decision. They didn't choose Christ. Okay. But isn't not choosing Christ one of the sins for which Jesus died. And if they are forgiven for not choosing Christ, why aren't they saved? In our text, Jesus at least implies the doctrine of particular redemption when he says, verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. Understand here that for our resurrection to occur, it has to be preceded by death. Paul taught, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Romans 6, verse 3 and following. In another text, Paul says that we were crucified with Christ. This identification with the work of Christ in resurrection presupposes that we are identified with him in his death. So when Jesus says in our text that he will lose none of all that God has given him, but will raise them up in the last day, he is saying that he died for those that will be raised up. And since he loses none for whom he died, and resurrection applies to all for whom he died, then his death must have had only these people in view. I've always had a problem in my thinking is, the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ. Peter says that that's what we were purchased with. That the blood of Christ was spilt. This is the other view now. For everybody in the world, 
but it didn't, it didn't accomplish for them salvation. It only accomplished it for some people. But it was built for everybody. Now, if this seems too convoluted for you, understand that elsewhere Jesus was very clear in teaching particular redemption. Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, next word, many. Did I read that right? Not everyone. Not the world. Many. Give his life a ransom. What's that? That's the cross. What's a ransom? It's to buy you out of your slavery. And this is an important text because Jesus specifically refers to why he came from heaven to earth. He came to be a servant. He came to give his life a ransom for many. His service was his death for his people. John 10 is another text where Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd and he says, I am the good shepherd. It's one of these I am statements in John's gospel. I know my sheep and my sheep know me and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10 verse 14 and follow. So clearly Christ goes on record in these scriptures that his death has atoning significance for certain people only. Many, yeah, millions, but not everyone. My sheep as distinguished from those whom he knows and who know him as a saving and trusting way. But how do we tell people this when we're giving the gospel? Should we tell them this? Well, in Matthew 20, Jesus was speaking to the 12, verse 17, but in John 10, he was addressing the unbelieving Jews, verse 19, and in our text, he is addressing unbelievers, verse 36. So obviously, unbelievers have a right to hear this truth of the gospel along with all of the rest. We have to find a way, and I'm not talking about being tricky here, I'm just talking about being truthful. We have to find a way to believe in particular redemption, if that's the gospel, and I believe it is, and at the same time enjoin sinners to come to Christ and be washed clean of their sin in Jesus' blood. So how are we going to do that? Let me suggest to you what we do not do. And that will help us understand what we are to do. We do not say to sinners, Christ died for, for is the idea of a substitution, Christ died for you. That makes redemption particular. You. Christ died for you. We do not tell them that their sins are under the blood of Jesus. We do not say the Savior gave his life for you. We don't know if any of these things are true in regard to the person to whom you're speaking. And we certainly don't tell them 
God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> we usually say that in regards to redeeming love. But do we know that they're going to be among the redeemed? See, okay, you told us what not to say, so what do we say? Instead, we say, Christ died for sinners. The blood of Jesus can wash away every sin. There is mercy to be found in coming to Christ. Through his atoning work, every sin you've ever committed can be forgiven. You see the difference? Now, if you've taken the time to explain to people that they are sinners, that they are lawbreakers before God, that they are lost apart from Christ's atoning sacrifice, by placing the stress of the gospel appeal on the general word sinner... If you've done that, they, under the prompting of the Holy Spirit, will be able to make the connection. Here's how it works. Christ died for sinners. Pastor says, I'm a sinner. The gospel says, I'm a sinner. Oh, Christ died for me. They make the connection by the power of the Spirit of God. And this is a free offer of the gospel without you intruding into the ministry of the Holy Spirit whose job alone it is to grant life and insight and faith and repentance to the lost. I can tell any person here today that Christ died for sinners and can also say you're a sinner and you need Christ. I can also say if you come to Christ, he won't turn you away. I can say all that the gospel of grace says I can say. But I don't intrude into the ministry of the Holy Spirit and tell them things which I don't know. Four, irresistible grace called effectual calling, which is the doctrine which says that all whom the Holy Spirit of God woos or calls to Christ will come. None will be able to withstand the calling of God. In our text, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 45, Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. Verse 63, The Spirit gives life. There's no equivocation here. What the Father has determined comes to pass. We would expect that knowing what the Bible teaches about God. You say, well, 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 wait a minute. Aren't sinners stubborn? Aren't they willful? Aren't they hard-hearted? Well, yeah, there are all those things and more to which we would add ungodly, wicked, haters of God. And it demonstrates just how impossible it is for sinners in and of themselves to have a change of heart with regard to God, suddenly reverse themselves, suddenly want God as a friend, and want Christ as a Savior. All those things militate against them doing that. 
what verse 44 of our text addresses that issue. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Verse 65, no one can come to me unless the Father enables him or her. Now, it's time for us to understand what this word means. The word draw here in Greek is a dynamic word. It means to compel. Listen to this. I'm reading right out of the right out of the Greek lexicon, out of the Greek dictionary. This word means to compel by irresistible force. Whoa! Well, that's what we need for stubborn, willful, ignorant God-haters. We need God to grab a hold of them by their shirt and compel them to come to Christ. It's the same word used of Paul when he was in Jerusalem teaching in the temple and the Jews from Asia recognized him, stirred up the crowd and says the whole city was aroused and the people came running in every direction. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple. It's that word. Now is Paul going to resist that crowd? Could they say, now wait a minute guys, you can't, you can't make me do that. They just grabbed him and snuffed him right out of there. The irresistible grace of God exhibits an irresistible force from God which compels sinners to come to Christ out of their love of sin and out of their hatred for God. And this is what is needed to move dead sinners who are totally unable to respond to right to spiritual things. And by the way, I would say here's an honest prayer for any seeker for, that, that doesn't know the truth. They can say, Lord, I know I'm stubborn. I know I'm willful, and I know I don't want the things that you, you want for me. But you can change my heart. That's, that's honest praying. Now, will you know how Jesus used this doctrine in his witness? When he saw that the Jews were at each other's throats, arguing over his teaching, being puzzled about the meaning of his words, he taught them the doctrine of effectual calling. He said, in effect, hey, guys, you're never going to figure out my words. You're never going to understand my meaning. It'll require the almighty, irresistible power of God to make you my disciple. So you might as well just stop grumbling among yourselves. Have you ever run into a person who likes to argue theology? They're everywhere. You know they are not a believer, but they think they are as wise as you about God things. And for every scripture you share, they fire back with a rebuttal, and they like to tie Christians up in knots with all these conundrums. Do you know that Jesus didn't take that? Nor should we. Paul told Timothy, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant was not quarrel. 2 Timothy 2 verse 23. By Jesus teaching these unbelievers that there was no way, no how they could figure him out on their own and come to him in faith, he demonstrated that he wasn't going to play that game anymore. And more importantly, he went on record that sinners don't question and examine God. God questions and examines them. 
Jesus owed them no explanation. They owed him allegiance on his say-so alone. When God commands, we're to listen. Thus, in our evangelism, it's fair to tell sinners, you will never understand the gospel. You will never come to Christ. You will never be saved from your unbelief unless God brings you to that place in your life. Pray that he brings you to that place in your life. And when we tell them that we are, that we are saying that they can't come to God in their own understanding and strength. More importantly, we are saying that they are at the mercy of God. And you know, that's the best place to be because God delights to show mercy. Say, well, you're knocking, you know, you're knocking the legs out from under everybody here in these doctrines. Yeah, except one person. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We're glorifying him as the Savior. Lastly and quickly, note that the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is also in our text, both in its preservation aspect, Jesus repeatedly says that he will never drive away or lose any who believe in him. Verse 37, verse 39, verse 40, verse 44. When you're in God's family, you're in God's family. And the other aspect the charge to continue on in holiness. These are repeated charges to believe in Christ, to eat and drink of him, to learn from the Father about him, and so on. Verse 45 and following. We didn't read that section of this chapter, but it's there. When I worked as a volunteer for an evangelist in my hometown in Pennsylvania who came to our town when I was a young man, just a young Christian, teenager, we were instructed to lead people to profess Christ. And, 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 and then if, if the person who walked the aisle began to exhibit some kind of doubts as to really being saved, we were to jump if, in with scriptures on eternal security. And, and we were to tell the new convert, now, now don't doubt God, don't doubt God. That's a wicked thing that we did. To give people a false sense of security because they walked an aisle and prayed a written out prayer to tell them they were eternally secure when they knew in their own heart that nothing had changed because they walked an aisle and prayed the prayer. Their doubts were the better indication of their soul. And as I observe the Lord's use of this doctrine, he links it with the electing grace of God. And this is the will of him who has sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. All those that are given, they're the ones that are secure. Verse 39. And the proof that one has been given to Christ by the Father is the perseverance with Christ. The teaching of Christ in John 6 was in the minds of the hearers a hard teaching, difficult to accept. Their words, not of mine. Verse 60. 
So much so from this time, many of his disciples turned back, no longer followed him. Verse 66. Oh, wow, this was tough stuff. Only Peter and the twelve remained. And Jesus was careful to exclude Judas as genuine, even though he stayed on this occasion. Verse 70. When we evangelize, we need to emphasize the perseverance in holiness side of this doctrine of perseverance. There's so many professing, and I call them phony Christians out there. We need to tell sinners the mark of true discipleship is to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Christ to the end of life. We need to tell them to examine themselves and test themselves to see if they are in the faith. We need to say, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. That's the doctrine. It's not the doctrine of eternal security, although those that persevere are eternally secure. But I move away from that other doctrine because of the wrong connotations people have oh once saved always saved yeah and then live like the devil for the rest of your life really no perseverance is the doctrine continue on with Christ he who endures to the end shall be saved taught Jesus so if a person is a Judas he can be an apostle and he can be a disciple and he can still end up as the son of perdition that's pretty scary Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. And Jesus clicks off all the five points in John chapter 6. Tonight we're going to examine a little more thoroughly this whole idea of eternal election. Father, thank you for your word. Praise your blessing for it. For every sinner here that's lost, may they understand today that Christ has promised to be their Savior if they will repent and believe. And where they don't have repentance and don't have faith, that can be a legitimate request. Lord, grant them the faith they don't have and the repentance they don't want to give and draw them effectually into your kingdom for your glory. (coughs) And for their good. I'm thankful that the gospel. That salvation. Is not of our doing. I'm thankful. If it were of our doing. No one on earth. Would be saved ever. Because the heart. Of man. Is naturally wicked. And opposed. To the holiness of God. But Lord, if you will move us, then we will be moved. If you will call us, we will come. If you will grant us repentance, we will repent. If you will grant us faith, we will believe. So we ask you to do your work in our hearts this day for your glory and our good. We need it for for our good. But we want to do it on the basis of your glory. Thank you. Amen.